Welcome to the podcast of New City Church. We hope this podcast inspires you on your journey of inward and outward transformation. Please join us on Sundays. You can find more information on our website, grownewcity.church. God bless you. We are in the middle of this sermon series called Spilling the Nativity, and it's been going super well. I'm, I'm very excited about it. Um, and today we have a reading from 2 Samuel, which is actually in the Old Testament, so it's the furthest back reading that we have. And I always believe in preaching off of scripture in context. So let's get a little bit of context here. So we're hearing God talking to David saying, I brought you from a shepherd to a king. Like you used to be a little shepherd boy and then you were a king, right? And and that's what had happened to David a long, 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 long time ago, um, thousands of years before Jesus's birth. And um, and uh, David rose as a king, and he was like morally like some, made some choices that I don't totally agree with, and he fought a lot of war. He did a lot of war, and he won. Like a lot of the battles that David fought ended up with David winning, and so he was kind of like sitting all high and mighty, like wow, I just I killed like a jillion people but it secured safety for my nation, like whatever, whatever. And then uh, his prophet, Nathan, has this vision where um, God speaks and says, uh, here's the thing. This is a little bit before the reading that we had today. Um, The prophecy was, um, David, your hands are too soiled with blood for you to build the temple, the, the place where people will go to worship God. God was like the sin of this generation is too great. The The wars that you fought are, are too sinful. And so uh, even though you're amazing at uh, in the eyes of all the people, uh, and even though you're praised and people compose songs talking about how amazing you are in battle, like you're not going to be the one who builds the temple. Um, that will have to come for future generations. Because sometimes the Old Testament teaches us the sin of generations is so great that we we have to count on future generations to be able to remediate that. And so, um, so in the text, like in Old Testamental times when people were reading this, everyone would have assumed that this was talking about Solomon. Solomon is the son of David, the, the next in line of the lineage, and Solomon was like an awesome king, like uh the economy was doing great <laughs> under Solomon. Like there was generally peace. Like he was renowned for being very wise. There was that one part where Solomon kind of like jokingly said that we should split up babies uh, to determine which mother was the real mother of this baby. He was like, we should cut this up. And whichever person feels worse is the mom. And like it resolved the case, but the mom was like, that was weird, and I don't like this now. <laughs> so <laughs> besides that moment, like Solomon in the realm of kings had a really good reign. And so uh, so people generally thought that the, um, the text of 2 Samuel was referring to Solomon, and Nathan was prophesying about Solomon. However, eventually, uh, Solomon, Solomon died. <laughs> like, like he was a king who did pretty well as a king, and then that ended. And uh, uh, slowly things kind of like fell apart, 
And eventually the people did experience diaspora. The people of God again and again got sent out or enslaved or uh, uh, the, the community was broken up. Uh, and which was like the exact opposite of what Nathan had prophesied about. And so then Jesus came along and, and the people of God were like, well, maybe, maybe that text wasn't about Solomon or in, a, in kind of a, a layered way of reading scripture, which everyone who has ever historically engaged in scripture pre-America knew that there were multiple meanings to the text, right? Um, where it's like, well, maybe that was referring to Solomon, but it's also referring to Jesus um, because it sure seems like what Jesus is pro- is promising is a lot of the fulfillment of what the the um, prophet Nathan had talked about. And it's interesting, the parallels, isn't it? Hearing that text about how um, in the first text, God had talked about raising uh, David from a shepherd to being a king, and then there were shepherds present in the manger of of Jesus. Um, But instead of the trajectory of what happened in the first one, God raising a shepherd into this mighty king, it was like the shepherds were like the high mark and then it just got lower from there. Because Jesus, in all of the humility that we could never expect from God, was born in a manger in a place where uh, 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 animals were. And people were all excited because they were like, I think you're going to be like Solomon volume two, but it's going to be better. Like Toy Story, like somehow got better as more (laughs) versions came along. Like, I feel like Jesus is going to be better than that. But now like we're going to this like manger where animals live and maybe there's like a different trajectory happening. Um, it seems like if this is Solomon round two, then it's going to be totally different from anything that we've ever seen before. So the other day I learned something. I was reading a book by Jorg Rieger. Yay. And uh, he was just talking about in, he, he, he was in conversation with uh, liberation theologians like Cohn, Park, and Bonino, and Chop. And he uh, was looking at the liberation theology as kind of like, the description of what God is doing to go about uh, freeing or saving the poor, marginalized people. Um, New City Church, in many ways, is in the lineage of liberation theologians. So he, uh, so Dr. Rieger, Dr. Rieger, by the way, uh, he's not a medical doctor, but Dr. Rieger, um, he says that there is a difference between liberal theologians and liberation theologians, liberal theologians and liberation theologians. He says liberal theologians tend to have a very optimistic view of humanity in a way that tends to downplay sin. Liberal theology tends to say that the Holy Spirit is like people power. And if we just work together and try hard enough, then we'll make it. He has this quote, sin for many liberals is easily addressed and humans seem to have a choice in whether or not they want to overcome sin as they can do whatever they put their minds to. Sin does not go very deep, meaning that those who justify their own positions are usually aware of what they're doing and can thus decide to stop sinning at any time. Now, I know that many of you come from uh, conservative backgrounds, and he also talks about uh, conservative evangelicals. He says, Um, In many evangelical circles, for instance, sin is defined as total separation of humanity and God without giving much thought to how this separation manifests in people's lives. 
All it would take to overcome this kind of sin is to believe in some divine action on the cross that supposedly overcomes the separation, expressed perhaps by saying a short prayer or by signing a card with a name and date. <clears throat> Here, sin remains, for the most part, abstract. And so he, he's kind of calling out both liberal and conservative theologies for talking about sin in such a way that it's either like pretty easily overcomable or it's like something that is um, a, a theological, like far out there nebulous concept, but like implications of it aren't concrete or felt in terms of like society and and who has food and who has healthcare like those types of concrete social things aren't necessarily directly brought up in terms of sin and liberation theology of course takes sin in in some ways uh dr rieger um argues takes sin more seriously because it, it's like uh, sin and salvation isn't just about like this kind of like ethereal like I said a prayer and then I felt a change in my heart and now I won't have premarital sex. Like it's, <laughs> it's not like this like super personal nebulous thing at the expense of there not have being any other social consequences to it, right? Like of course spirituality is personal and salvation is personal, but necessarily like the lives of the poor are impacted by the work of God. And liberation theology says that like the Holy Spirit's not finished. If you're just going to have like your own little personal story and your biggest concern is whether or not you're taking quiet time to read the Bible, but you're not taking loud time to go and pro go fight for the marginalized people in the world. right? Like, like both of those things are important in liberation theology, not just one over the other. And, and furthermore, uh, Dr. Rieger just talks about, like, when you do theology among oppressed people, meaning, like, you're not, like, creating theology in an ivory tower and then letting it rain down to the masses, but rather, like, in a circle of people who are oppressed, letting theology arise from that, putting the experience of marginalized people in conversation with the Bible, letting it arise from that, you start to see a very different picture of sin. Uh, he just notices that like most of the time when we're doing theology among oppressed, oppressed people, it's pretty evident that we're going to need help to overcome sin. And not just like a little bit, not just even like people power, but we're gonna need like divine help, like God's help. It's like this meme that I saw of a wall with a crack through it and just a couple of pieces of duct tape trying to patch it back together it's like okay um actually we're gonna need a little bit more help than what you think and it's and it's actually more help than any amount of duct tape is going to supply i think that the story of jesus is like we're gonna we're not just gonna need another solomon we're actually gonna need a savior and those are extremely like categorically different. And unless we know what type of help we're looking for, we won't be able to receive that type of help. Um, I uh, was in a conversation a couple years ago with Julia Dinsmore and she was like, every poor person has faith in something because when you owe $500 at the end of the month 
and you have $20 to your name, and then the next month you're still around and able to live, it's like something bigger than yourself is working in the world. And and like for the people who don't have the privilege to be able to pull themselves up by the bootstraps, like that type of reliance on, some, on something bigger than yourself is foundational. And so for this reason, liberation theology both says that sin is not something that we can just kind of make some simple choice to not have. Sin is like a deeply foundational systemic problem that is so serious and so like manifest in so many different parts of our society and life that we need help. And that type of like divine, the reach for divine assistance like is part of the, the act of faith. And that doesn't contradict that like the spark of God is alive in us, that the Holy Spirit moves through us. It's saying like when you experience God moving in the world through people, never limit that, uh, the story of that to just be a story about people power. There's a bigger thing happening in the world and like we uh, necessarily need to recognize how the Holy Spirit is moving in the world because when we see where from where our help comes, it changes the response. If our help comes from God, then the correct response is worship. And like through worship, we start to see that God is in fact on a mission to go about ending marginalization and oppression. That's a, a, one of the foundational observations of many liberation theologians, at least. And maybe this is the reason why Michelle Alexander, the lawyer who wrote the prolific and revolutionary book, The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness, maybe this is the reason why Michelle Alexander decided to become a professor at Union Se Theological Seminary, a set are you catching what I'm saying? Michelle Alexander is a visiting professor at a seminary. Of all the places that she can invest her energy, she decided that a seminary is the place where she will go about rendering a certain type of change that won't be seen anywhere else. Uh, she has this quote, we are called to build a new moral consensus in this country, a revolutionary understanding about who we are as human beings, who we are as children of God, and what we owe one another. And I'm not using this word revolutionary as mere rhetorical flair. After years of piecemeal policy reform and tinkering with the mass incarceration machine, I now finally understand what Dr. King meant when he said, just months after his death, after Selma, after the Civil Rights Act, and after the Voting Rights Act had been passed, he told a reporter, for years I labored with the idea of reforming the existing institutions of the society, a little change here, a little change there. But now I feel quite differently. I think you've got to have a reconstruction of the entire society, of revolution, of values. Jesus came to the earth to bring about a revolution of values. And in order for that revolution of values to come about, God is sending us a spirit that is so hard for us to recognize because it doesn't look like what we assume it would look like. Like everyone who during Jesus' time thought that the Savior would look a lot more like David 
or Solomon at the height of their reign. And instead, Jesus is like, ta-da, I'm showing up in the hardest to find little baby spot. Only the people who are up late at night watching the stars are even going to be able to find me much less uh, uh, these social networks. Uh, uh, Joseph and Mary didn't have even a place to stay. They didn't have any family to put them up to take a census, right? Like that's why they were staying at this manger. And it's like, yeah, that's the spot where God is going about doing the work of this revolution. And we have to have the eyes to see it, the ears to hear it, the hearts to perceive it. And Jesus is like, here's the deal. I'm not here to just make all of you Caesars. I don't want you to just have your own empire. That's not what a win looks like. A win for God means no more empires and an establishment of the kingdom of God. And that kingdom is going to be as counterintuitive as the birth of Jesus in itself. That kingdom is going to be a place where children are going to teach adults about God, where the last will be first and where the foreigners that we meet are going to be able to teach us and and show us God in a way that we won't be able to experience in the temple. The new kingdom is going to start not with a rise to power, but through a humbling and solidarity together. There is This kingdom is going to be completely different, but once you get to know what we're up against, once you get to really call a spade a spade and look sin in the eye and understand what is happening, seeing that sin isn't just a series of choices, but sin is like a spiritual reality (laughs) that we need help to address, then suddenly the kingdom of God will show in new relief. Suddenly it'll make a ton of sense that the most marginalized folks are going to be the very folks who show what the kingdom of God can look like on earth that the marginalized folks are going to be the places where the Holy Spirit is alive. And I wonder if Mary looked around at the faces of the people who visited her and this baby. And of course, I'm thinking of the faces of the folks in the QTI POC nativity, because I mean, hello, it's so amazing. I wonder if she looked at those faces and thought to herself, you know, none of these folks are the folks that I thought would be the people I'm seeing when a new world order comes. I didn't think these would be the crew that brings about a new world order. But the logic of God is that the very people who are around us, the least expected among us, are the very people who are going to bring us into a world of peace, the pathway of peace, because that's where God shows up. And ultimately, I believe that liberation theology is a theology of hope. Even though there is this characterization of sin and awareness of like how much work we have left to do, there is that much more of a trust and affirmation that we have a God who wants to get us there. May we travel together this Christmas season. Amen.